series here, The Terms of the Blood Covenant. How does that sound? All right. Well, hopefully it'll sound better in about 40 minutes. So here we go. We'll be done by that. All right, turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be beginning, beginning in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, here's the quote, this is the covenant that I will make with them. So he's beginning saying that God's going to make a covenant. Now he's outlining some of the terms of the covenant. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's some other terms of the the covenant we'll be looking at over several weeks. But in lots uh, lots of churches, a lot of people do not hear the good news of the gospel. Actually, what they hear is actually the worst news you could ever hear. Right? Each week they get a long list. Here's some things you should be doing and you shouldn't be doing. And if you don't do the right things and if you do the wrong things, then God's going to be mad at you. That's the news that they hear week after week, right? Uh, here's places you should go, places you shouldn't go. And if you conform to these laws and you do everything right, then you're going to be what they call a good Christian, right? And quite possibly, honestly, that is bad news. That, 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 that you're not doing enough, that you're not good enough, that you have to try to earn God's favor because you can never be perfect. That is bad news. That's the false gospel of religion. So we've got Christians who are trying to walk this religious tightrope. They're trying not to go to the places they're not supposed to go, and they're supposed to show up to the meeting they're supposed to show up to on time and say the right things and not say the wrong things and desperately trying to conform to the image of what they think a good Christian is supposed to be. And I don't know about you guys, I lived this way for many years. I got, I got trapped under this thing. And then one day it dawned on me what the good news really was. I don't know if you guys know, the word gospel literally means good news. That's what it means. And here's the thing. News is something that has already happened. It's not an announcement of something that you must now do. So when you hear the word good news, it's an announcement of something that has already happened, okay? Uh, I like what Andrew Womack calls the, uh, the gospel. He calls it the almost too good to be true news. Several hundred years ago, some writers were calling it the good, glad, merry news that makes a man want to dance and leap and spin for joy. So I'm not sure you've heard <laughs> I would need to stretch out and train for a couple months. But you know what? If you hear it correctly today, we'll, uh, perhaps we'll do it. This news is so good, it's better than the story of the man named Jed, the poor mountaineer who barely kept his family fed. It's better than that story, even. If you're under, if you're under 40, you, uh, you just nudge somebody who's older, they can explain that one to you. But when I found out the good news, you know, it really is good news. It's the most fantastic news you could ever hear. Because the good news is not something that I have to do for God. I find out that it's actually something that God has already done for me. And my response is to say, yes. That's it. And here's the good news, guys. God has entered into a covenant with us. Now, that's probably not a word that a lot of us have used in the past 24 hours, but in the Bible, it was a big deal. I don't know if you realize, your Bible is actually divided into two parts. Your Bible probably says Old Testament and New Testament, but uh, the New Revised Standard actually has it uh, correctly. It says the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Bible is literally divided into covenants. It's, it's a book of covenant. The Bible is a story of God entering into covenant with us, and that is the good news. So what's a covenant? You guys have probably heard it's an agreement, it's a pledge, you know, it's a promise, but it kind of makes it sound like a legal contract. We kind of think of like a courtroom, we've signed some papers, we've got this agreement, and we've all watched lawyer shows where they bust through these agreements and it actually means nothing. It's nothing like that. There's much more too. The Hebrew word, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and so the Hebrew word for covenant is berit, and it means to cut covenant by the shedding of blood. So you don't make a covenant with somebody, you cut a covenant by shedding blood. So the Living Bible, whenever it translates that word berit, it says blood covenant. I really like that. It gets to the picture of it. So if the Bible is divided into the old blood covenant 
and the new blood covenant, then what is a blood covenant? Okay, I'll spend some time on that. Now, a blood covenant goes back to the dawn of history. It's, uh, I mean, it's like since the gates of the Garden of Eden, we see the first blood covenant there, where they, uh, where they, um, took, uh, they killed animals and covered themselves with animal skins. There was a shedding of blood right there at the gates. It was almost like God taught humanity about the blood covenant. And in every ancient civilization, they had a form of the blood covenant. You could actually go to um, places today, uh, tribes in South America, there's parts of Africa. They do it almost the same way that the Bible does it. They add a couple pagan rites to it, but the basics of the blood covenant is still around today. Now, here's a, let me give an example of this. A blood covenant was between men. So I'm just going to pick on my friend Ray. Ray Diani, how are we doing? You and I are going to enter into a blood covenant, okay? Suppose Ray and I have long, uh, known each other long enough. So you know what? I kind of trust this guy. I kinda, I'm not saying I'm going to do this. I'm just saying, hypothetically. By the way, you don't need to enter into covenant with people today. You've got a covenant with your spouse. You've got a covenant with God. You don't need to do all this other covenant stuff, okay? So, all right, that was just a freebie. But suppose Ray and I have known each other long enough to enter into blood covenant. And so uh, the book of Amos says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? So you don't just lightly enter into a covenant. When Amos said that, how can two walk together? He was speaking of a blood covenant. That was the context of that, okay? And so you've got to agree with the person. You've got to be ready to give yourself to this person if you're going to enter into blood covenant. So here's, what, here's how the ritual begins. Um, so I'll say I trust Ray enough to enter into a blood covenant. So the first act is you would take off your coat, okay? Take off your coat. It's a symbolic act. And so that's how you start off a Hebrew blood covenant. To a Hebrew, your coat represents who you are. Remember when Paul said in the New Testament, put off the old man and put on the new? What's he talking about? You're completely taking off that old way of existing. It completely represented how you were before that covenant, and you're putting on a new way of life. In the Hebrew mind, a coat represents the totality of who you are. So I would take off my coat. I take off, I'm taking off Jim, and I say, Ray, here I am. Take me. I give you everything that I am. All that I am, I'm now giving to you. And, uh, he would, and he would take off his coat, and he would say, here is Ray. All that Ray is is now coming to me. That's the first act. The second act is I take off my belt. Now, a belt in, Hebrew, in, the, in the Jewish world, it wasn't to hold up your, your britches, okay? It was to hang a, a, door, a, a dagger and your sword on, okay? So when you take off your belt, here's what you're saying is, um, uh, here is my strength. Here are my weapons. If anybody attacks you or if you ever need strength, just remember, all of my ability to fight, all of my weapons are at your disposal. If anybody touches you, they touch me too, and we will fight back. Remember, this is going to be for God with us. Are you guys starting to see some parallels? That's just the introduction of the covenant. Taking off the coat, all that I am. Taking off of the belt, all, of, all, that I, all my weapons, everything that I have at my, uh, my disposal is now yours. And, uh, but now we get to the cutting of the covenant. So we would take an animal, and you would split the animal right down the middle. There's no other sacrifice in the Bible like this. This one goes split through the skull, split right down the, the backbone. And you would take the, uh, the, uh, the animal, and you would arrange it in half. So you would take the pieces that were cut in half, you would arrange it in half, there would be a certain prescribed number of animals, and now there would be a blood path. You'd be, literally, you'd stand between the walls of blood, and, uh, and Ray and I would stand between these walls of blood, and we would make a figure eight. We'd walk between the walls of blood, we'd make a figure eight, and there we would stand uh, facing each other. And as we would do, um, the symbolism of the, of the walls of blood and the shedding of animals were saying this, I'm dying even as this animal has died. My old way of living before this covenant is now over. I died all the rights I had in my life. I'm now giving my life away to you. You can share it. It's your life too. And he would be saying the same thing to me. 
But I'm also saying, if I break this covenant, and the animal and the, uh, the Hebrews, as they would do this, they would point to the animals and they would say this, if I break this covenant, God so do to me and more. That'd be the phraseology. God so do to me and more. May God split me down the backbone if I break this covenant. You can see in Ezekiel, they, they took it seriously. They're saying, just as these animals were broken in half, God will do this to you. Interestingly, well, I don't know if I want to get into all this yet. Interestingly enough, here's the symbolism. If I break this covenant, may I be torn to pieces like these animals. It's interesting, when God made the covenant with man, remember he caused Abraham to fall into sleep, the first covenant he made with man. He caused Abraham to fall into sleep, and uh, instead of Abraham passing between the pieces, God came down like a smoking pillar, remember that? And God himself passed between the pieces. So the symbolism was this. If man breaks this covenant, I will be torn to pieces. Interesting. The blood covenant is an unbreakable covenant. So now Ray and I, we stand in the middle of death with blood on either side of us. We're symbolically entering into death, coming out different, a different kind of person. We're going to enter into covenant by which we just die to our past, coming alive to a new relationship, and then we would cut ourselves. And so you know in the American court system, they put their hand in the Bible, they raise the right hand, da-da-da-da-da, so help me, God. Why do they raise the right hand? It's actually um, part of a covenant language, what they would do, is they would cut themselves in the palm, some cultures would cut it on the wrist, and as blood would, uh, would uh, run down their arm, they're holding up their arms, swearing before deity that they're going to keep these promises. And so, uh, so the, 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 uh, in the Hebrew, they would cut their wrist, and what would happen is their uh, blood would flow from my wrist, and the blood would flow, flow from Ray's wrist. There'd be a striking of hands in pledge. There'd be a coming together, and as my blood flows into him and his blood flows into me, the two of us are now in union. Our lives are flowing together. Leviticus says that the life is in the blood. Literally, my life is flowing into your life. Your life is flowing into my life. We've come into union. Has anybody seen some New Testament stuff in here yet? So imagine the scene. <clears throat> Uh, Ray and I were standing in blood. We've cut our wrists. My life's flowing into his. His life is flowing into mine. And now we, from now on, we be known as blood brothers. And uh, when a covenant was taken, names were changed. And so my name would now be Ray. His name would now be Ray Baker Diani, and I would be Jim Diani Baker. <laughs> and we include our names in each other because we become one person within the terms of this new covenant. I am in Ray, and he is in me. How we doing? Then we would make a seal. And so some cultures, they would rub some kind of powder in it, but you want a scar to be on the wrist. There would be a seal there. It has a twofold effect. When I look at this seal, I remember the great responsibility that I have. From now on, anything that happens to that fellow happens to me. Anything. If he gets into debt, I've got to pay. If he comes into money, I've got to share. <laughs> Sell some houses, Ray. It's a blood covenant, and we are absolutely one together now. And that mark, so that remark reminds me of my responsibility, but it's also a great comfort, because if anybody comes at me, I remember, I'm never alone. Anything that comes to me comes to the ray in me. And they see there's, and so uh, the enemy sees, hey, there's more to this guy than meets the eye. There's more to me than just me. There's someone in me, with me. So this seal is a guarantee of covenant. It tells me of my blessing, but it also reminds me of my responsibility. 
So having done that, we would stand before witnesses. You can imagine there's these walls of blood, the figure eight of blood. We've walked the blood path. There's intermingling. Now there's the, uh, the, we stand before witnesses, and we would give the terms of the covenant blessings. I would read to him my bank account. I would read to him everything. I got my savings, checkings, investment accounts, and I would say, everything that I have, if you should need this, it's yours. So let's say an ordinary friend of mine comes and says, hey, I need $1,000. Well, I mean, if they're a really good friend, I might give it to them. But if it's Ray, we're in covenant together. I say, here's the checkbook. You don't have to ask. It's already yours. We are one together. We would continue reading the terms of the covenant. I would read all of my assets. Then I would read to him all of the things that I'm able to do that he can't do. I would say, Ray, I will help you on your forehand loop against underspin push. <laughs> Any help that this blood brother needs, it's his, and vice versa. He reads the list of all that I walked into, and the, and the witnesses would listen, and they would bear witness in years to come that, yeah, they really did say that. And now we've uh, finalized the whole matter with a memorial meal. Everything I've told you so far is in the Bible. It doesn't list all these things out all in one place, but you see all the different elements in the context of covenant. <clears throat> but many times, uh, uh, there's often that memorial meal is mentioned, and oftentimes in the covenant. Sometimes they made a heap of stones with a memorial meal. Remember when uh, Laban or Laban and Jacob, they, had their, uh, they made a covenant and they had a, a memorial and it says that they wrote over it. And these were two, like, con artists, right? Jacob's name meant deceiver. Laban's like, hey, you can marry my girl. Switches her out the altar. Seven more years of work. I'm free labor. Remember that? These are two deceivers. And I, saw, I love it. When they made a covenant together, they added a little extra to it. They write the word mizpah over. They put a heap of stones to kind of memorialize this. And the mizpah means uh, the Lord washed between you and me when we're out of each other's sight. <laughs> In other words, I don't trust you one inch. So, let, yeah. Uh, another time, King Abimelech and Abraham entered into a covenant in Genesis 21, and they exchanged a flock of sheep before the memorial meal. Every time they saw the other person's sheep, it was a reminder to them, as I'm in covenant with this person. Other times, they planted trees, and as those trees grew, they became a memorial to the covenant. But as they presented the memorial, whatever it was, they sat down and they had a memorial meal. It was a very simple meal. Um, here's, what, here's what the meal was. It was a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. In our example, I would uh, take this loaf of bread, and I would break the bread, and I would take the piece, and I would give it to Ray, and I would say, the bread was representing me. All that I am now goes into you. So, Christ in you, Jim in Ray, the covenant together, the two lives, the union coming together, the bread would be saying, this is me, now into you I put me, we are now one. Is anyone starting to think about communion differently today? Can you see how we're going to end this today? Then I would take the cup of wine and I would serve him with the wine. And I'd be saying, my very blood has become your blood. We are one together and the covenant would be finished. Here's something important. All of Ray's children are included in the covenant just by virtue of their father entering into it. Let's say Ray and I did this when we were 12 years old. The way the Hebrews see it, all of Ray's kids are in Ray, so they're in him having this same covenant, even though they were never born yet. To the Hebrew, the children were in the father before they were ever born. They're standing there entering the covenant before they were ever born. And so when when Ray's kids become of age of understanding, they would choose if they wanted to be part of the covenant before they were born. So when you see the word covenant in the Bible, that's all summed up in everything that I just said. 
And uh, they, don't, they don't have to explain it in the, in the Hebrew mind because they all understood it. This was part of their culture. They didn't have to put this every single time. But when you read the word covenant, this is, what's, uh, this is what comes to mind. The Bible is the story of two blood covenants that God ratified with man. That's what the whole thing's about. So I want to take you quickly through the story. 1 Samuel 18 and 19 and then 2 Samuel 9. I encourage you, maybe write that down and read it this week. 1 Samuel 18 and 19, 2 Samuel 9. And in the book of Samuel, you basically got three characters. You've got Saul, David, and Jonathan. <clears throat> so Saul, the first character, Saul, he was a man who somehow um, was not a man after God's own heart. Okay, it was like whatever the will of God was, Saul wanted to do the opposite of it. He like had an aversion to obeying God somehow. Uh, Saul was a man, he lived, uh, he lived to do his own will. He wanted to go his own way. Uh, whatever God said, Saul rebelled, and it rubbed off on his family. All of his family began to live the same way. The whole family of Saul rebelled against God. The second character is David. And uh, David was the complete opposite of Saul. God says this about David in the New Testament. David was a man after God's own heart. David delighted to do the will of God with all of his heart. Even when he blew it big time, he delighted to come to God in repentance and brokenness and being restored. And for that reason, Saul hated David. Every time he looked at David, he saw God, and he just hated it. And so Saul decided to do the smear campaign on David. He started telling people, listen, if David ever gets hold of you, he's going to kill you, so we better kill him first. And he begins poisoning the palace and poisoning his family with these thoughts, and he becomes obsessed with them. Uh, remember, there's times where David's playing his harp. Uh, you know, Saul's under this demonic uh, oppression. David would play the harp, and the, the demons would leave. And all of a sudden, he would, he would get clarity again, and he would throw a spear at David on multiple occasions. He'd dodge out of the way just in dark. He wants to wipe David off the face of the planet. Saul's obsessed with David. We've got to get David. We've got to spy on David. Tell me where David is. And a lot of the book of Samuel is him pursuing him. Now, there's a third character in the book of Samuel, and his name is Jonathan. Jonathan was of the family of Saul. He was the rightful heir to the throne. He was Saul's son. And Jonathan uh, was, it was nothing like his own family. He was a man who loved God. He was actually willing to give up his throne if it was God's will. It would be unthinkable to think about David and Saul entering into an agreement together, right? I mean, how can two walk together unless they be as one? But when David and Jonathan met each other, they were a kindred spirit. They were both men after God's own heart. And in, uh, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 18 that they entered into covenant. Now, it doesn't mention, mention all of the ritual that I uh, talked to you about, but when the Living Bible translated it, it says they entered into a blood covenant. And it does tell you the first act. It says Jonathan took off his coat and took off his belt and his sword and his bow, and he gave it to David. And David and Jonathan entered into covenant, and they became blood brothers. And so David carried on his mark, this wrist of blood covenant. He was in blood covenant to Jonathan, and Jonathan likewise would have had that mark on his wrist. And of course, all of the unborn children, they, they were teenagers when they did this, maybe late teens, maybe middle teens. They weren't married yet. They had no kids. But all of David's kids and all of Jonathan's kids were in them at this. So they would receive all the blessings of the covenant, even though they weren't born yet. You guys ready for this? All right. So time passes. Um, Jonathan gets married. He has children. And one of his children was named Mephibosheth. Has anyone ever thought about naming their kid Mephibosheth? And that just, that poor kid, right? So he's trying to spell that like in, as a four-year-old. Mephibosheth, uh, son of Prince Jonathan, heir to the throne. And when he was about five years old, Jonathan and Saul were out in a war, and they were both killed on the same day. And so while word gets back to the palace that, um, that Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, and um, so, uh, so the people in the family of Saul, they begin to think, oh no, David's on the throne now. He's going to come wipe us out. Imagine you've been brainwashed all your life. All you've ever been told is David wants the throne. We've got to get David. If David ever gets hold of you, David's going to kill you. And so now what are you going to do when you find out Saul's gone and Jonathan's gone? You're going to pack up your bags and run. 
You're going to run and hide. And that's what they did. The family of Saul, they scatter everywhere. Some ran to the north, some to the south, some fled to the deserts. They're scared because all they've been hearing is if David gets in office, we're dead men. And of course, it was lies, but lots of people believe the lies about God, don't they? As the royal nurse was, uh, so she's, uh, she's running out of the palace. They're going to escape for the lives because she believes that David's coming to get them. Uh, she's running down the corridor. Suddenly she remembers Prince, uh, Prince Mephibosheth. He was just a little baby. Um, he, uh, he's in the royal nursery. She goes and grabs him, and now she's really in a hurry because now she's lost even more time. She's running, and as she does, she trips, and she drops the baby and crushes his legs. And baby Mephibosheth would never walk, would never walk again. And so she picks up his battered little body and carries him off into hiding with the members of the house of Saul, and they go to this little village called Lodibar. It was kind of a guerrilla outpost for the family members of Saul where they're plotting David's death, and uh, they kind of made it their headquarters. So imagine being raised in guerrilla headquarters. That's where Mephibosheth was raised. So he's taught all the time, you're the rightful king, you know. Really and truly, you should be king, and David has taken it. And if David gets hold of you, he's going to kill you. He's going to torture you. So make sure you get David first. And he fed on that stuff day after day, year after year. But little did Prince Mephibosheth, well, you try saying that a couple times in the sermon. Little did Prince Mephibosheth know that he was in covenant with David. He didn't realize that he was in his father, Jonathan, when they were cutting that covenant. And their blood flowed and their life flowed in each other and they became one. Back in Hebron, where David reigned as king, every morning he looked at that mark on his wrist. And every day he remembered, I'm in covenant with Jonathan. Where are they? I want to show kindness to the children of Jonathan, but I can't find them. They've scattered everywhere. And years go by, and David can't find Mephibosheth. Finally, one day, David comes across his old servant. I guess he had seen that David isn't like uh, the way that they said he is. So after years and years, you find this old servant of Saul, and uh, David finds him, and he says, hey, where is, where is Mephibosheth? And he says, he's in Lodibar. And so uh, within hours, the royal chariots of David are thundering across the desert. You can see them swinging their big ark around the guerrilla headquarters. Now, how would you feel if you're Mephibosheth? You hear the beating of the, ho- of the hoof prints, of the hoof steps of the, uh, of the king's army, and the captain of the guard is now walking up to the door. You reach out, uh, you swing your dead, paralyzed legs over the side of the bed. You reach for the two crutches that have become your legs, and you drag yourself to the window. You're unshaven, you're unkempt, you don't look like a prince. And you look out the window through the cacti, and here's the captain of the guard coming to the house. And without a word, Mephibosheth drags himself out of the house as he's subpoenaed to appear before David. As he sits in the chariot that's headed back to the royal palace, he's trembling and scared. I'm sure a cold sweat runs down his back. His mouth is dry. And now he is in the presence of King David. <clears throat> he takes one look at David, and every word he's ever heard, everything he's been raised on about David, it all comes flooding back to him. He's waiting to hear the words, off to the dungeons, then off with, off with his head. He's probably expecting a little lecture first. David leans over his throne and says, Mephibosheth, at last I found you. And he's thinking, yeah, I know you have. Get on with it. And the king speaks these words to Mephibosheth. I want to return to you all the land of your father, Jonathan. I want to give you, whew, I want to give you all the lands of your grandfather, Saul. I'm going to restore all the money. Uh, we didn't touch it. We put it in a treasury, and it's been gaining interest this whole time. I want to give it back to you now. And all that trembling of Mephibosheth increased, except now it's with excitement. And he begins blurting out words like this. I'm not worthy. You can't do this to me, David. If you only knew what I've been doing to you, you would have never done anything like this. 
Here's the way he puts it in, uh, in Hebrew. Here's how uh, Mephibosheth says it. I'm as a dead dog. The Hebrews put dead dogs on heaps. He says, listen, if you knew the kind of person I really was, you'd stick me on the garbage heap. But David leans over the throne and says, I know Mephibosheth. You're not getting this on the basis of reward. I'm doing this on the basis of a covenant that I made with your father, Jonathan, before you were ever born. Mm. I'm not doing it because of some merit. I'm doing it because of the blood of your father, Jonathan, was shed. A covenant which cannot be broken. And for the sake of Jonathan, I'm being faithful to Jonathan and giving you now the blessing that belongs to him. Hope somebody's getting this. Mephibosheth sags, weak on the floor, and he's got a big decision to make. Of course, from our viewpoint, it's not like a big decision. See, do you go back to the gorilla hut in the desert of Lodibar or stay in the palace of Hebron? But there is a decision, because if he's going to accept it, he's going to say, I'm accepting this blood covenant relationship, and, um, and if I say yes to this, it means I'm going to be the possession of David, and David is now going to be the possession of me. Everything that, if he accepts this, everything that David has is mine, but everything that I have is now David's. If he accepts it, he's going to have to die to those guerrilla warfare days in the desert. He's going to have to die to that old way of life, and he's going to have to come alive to a new kind of relationship with this king. And Mephibosheth made the decision. He would do it. And as soon as he did, I just imagined two servants coming out, putting a cape on him and saying, Lord Mephibosheth. And they gave him silver-plated crutches, and they escorted him to his suite of rooms. You know, when you get restored to a new identity, it takes a little bit of time to, to get used to it. 24 hours ago, he was hiding in the desert for his life. Now he's got servants. Would you like two lumps or three lumps of sugar in your coffee this morning? And he's got to remember, I'm not here because I deserve it. It's because of the bloodshedding that happened before I was even born. And every time he doubted the king's goodness, he would just look at David's wrists, and he would be reminded that there's a blood covenant. Guys, the whole Bible is a story of covenant. You and I were born into the family of Saul. We were born with a sin nature. The Bible says every one of us are like sheep. We've gone astray, each to his own way. We all have rebelled against the Lord. That, but in this story, David is the picture of God. Most people at one time idea, had an idea of God that he's like this mean kid with a magnifying glass, like burning ants or pulling wings off of flies. And God is this cruel person. And the idea is if God ever gets hold of me, he's going to take something away from me and punish me. That's how most people think of God. Unfortunately, even some people in the church. People think if, you know, if I really give my life to God, he'll give me cancer or he'll kill loved ones. They think God sends natural disasters on, as judgments of, uh, of, of sin. You know, you see uh, even in the insurance companies, things are called an act of God when a flood comes and wipes out a community. There's a lot of people who have a warped feel, uh, view of God, and they feel very much at home in Saul's family. But you see, there was born in the family of Saul somebody who was totally unlike the family of Saul. He was absolutely the family of Saul, yet he didn't fit there one little bit. Our Jonathan's name is Jesus. He was born into the sea of humanity, but he wasn't anything like them. He was bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He was absolutely one of us, but he wasn't really one of us. The favorite title he had for himself was the Son of Man. He was one of us, but he was different than the rest of us. That's a better way of saying it. Jesus is our blood brother. I want you guys to get this. Part of your new identity is that you are blood brothers with Jesus. God became flesh and made himself a brother of the human race, he is one of us. 
Listen, if you got one man who never sinned, you can take the place of another man who never sinned. One for one, that's pretty good. But if you have one man who is God at the same time, you can take the place of the entire human race. Let me explain that to you, okay? What does it mean that Jesus died for us? How many goldfish is Ray Diani worth? Five? Anyone want to give me 10? 100 goldfish for Ray Diani? How many fish lives is one human life worth? Listen, guys, you could add goldfish after goldfish to infinity, and one human life is worth an infinite no- One human life is worth an infinite number of fish lives. Now, let's use our imagination here. Let's suppose that that one human being who's worth an infinite number of goldfish, by some wonder, could enter into the life of a goldfish. He would become a goldfish, but he would never stop being Ray Diani. Somehow, Ray Diani has become this goldfish. Well, you'd have some kind of goldfish. That goldfish would still make the same water currents when it flapped its, uh, when it flapped its fins, but that goldfish was worth every other goldfish that had ever been born and ever would be because he's still part human. Have you ever wondered why um, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he gathers the disciples around the table, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he didn't explain it all to them. They were like, what do you mean? Because they understood the symbolism of what it was. They understood blood covenant. They didn't understand what it was going to cost, but they understood the implications. That Jesus was going to enter into a covenant with the Father, even as Mephibosheth was with Jonathan. I'm not sure if you guys are getting this. The covenant is between God and Jesus. So there's nothing you and I can do to screw it up. The covenant was between David and Jonathan. There's nothing Mephibosheth could do to screw it up. He wasn't even born yet. And even as Mephibosheth was in Jonathan, so you were in Jesus. And it wasn't just a little cut on his wrist. It was the shedding of blood. And as Jesus hangs on the cross and his blood is shed, he didn't just symbolically say, I'm dying by walking in the blood path. He actually died. And from the crown of thorns in his head to the nails in his feet, he became the walls of blood. He became that figure eight. It almost is like a picture of a figure eight when you see the cross. It's almost that picture there. And your sins had to be dealt with because you couldn't enter into a covenant with the Father if you had any sin. So all our sins are wiped out. And it's no good saying, hey, you got a covenant, but you still got this ugly heart. God says, here's part of the terms of the new covenant. I'll give you a new heart. And you enter into a covenant with the Father, we'll look at this for a whole week. It means that you know him very well. He's going to be your teacher. In fact, it means that he belongs to us and we belong to him. Remember in uh, the, the covenant language of Song of Solomon's, I am my beloved and he is mine. I belong to God and he belongs to me. All of him. And when the blood covenant was completely cut, do you remember what Jesus shouted from the cross? It is finished. It was done. The Bible says that through the shedding of that blood, Jesus entered into his Father's presence. And you know what? If he did, we did too, because we're in him. A lot of Christians are trying to feel God's presence or get to some point where they can experience God's presence. You're already there. Just turn your attention towards him. Any feeling of distance or separation is a complete lie. There's no distance and no separation because you are in him and he is in the Father. Now, of course, the covenant's got to be sealed. And so Ephesians 1 says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. <laughs> you don't have a mark on your, uh, on your wrist. You've got a mark on your spirit. And when every, time, every time he sees you, he sees you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's done. You are in covenant with the Father. This is the news that has already happened. 
Of course, we didn't know about that. Um, you know, we, but we were outside of Jesus. We were raised in the family of Saul. We were brainwashed with these lies. God is angry with you. If, you're, if you get near to God, it's going to be an awful thing. It's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. We lived in the guerrilla warfare camp. We lived in the world. We had no time for God. And suddenly the chariots of God surrounded us. The Holy Spirit moved in and our hearts became convicted. We got the bad news and we said, God, I'm a sinner. And then we got the good news. We heard the unbelievable news where God says, I've entered into a covenant with you through the shedding of the blood of Jesus. And these are the terms of the covenant. Your sins and iniquities, I will remember them no more. My laws, I'm going to write them inside your heart so you're going to be a new person. You shall know me for I will be your teacher. You will be my people and I will be your God. It's all yours. I tell you what, when we hear this kind of good news, somewhere along the line, there's going to come some demonic voice that's going to say, you're not worthy. You do not deserve this. Your prayers do not deserve to be answered. And uh, you just say, you know what? I'm not worthy. We're not talking about being worthy. You receiving this has nothing to do with you being worthy. It has everything to do with the mark on his wrist and his feet and his thorn and his side. You see, before you were ever born, that's the same way Mephibosheth came in. You are part of a legal agreement, a covenant that stands good in the universal courts of heaven. And you have a legal right to your brand new nature. You have a legal right to know God intimately. And you have a legal right to call upon him and say, you are my God. I love how Romans puts it. Um, the spirit witnesses with your spirit that you are a child of God. The Holy Spirit comes in and witnesses. So let's say you get saved and uh, a week later someone says, prove it. Okay? You just say, listen... Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know how I can prove it. I can just say there's someone living on the inside of me, and I know that I know that I know. Maybe in a couple years, I'll understand it more, but you don't need any more proof other than that you have a witness of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. The enemy is going to say, you think God's going to answer your prayers after all you've done? You've got some nerve. Asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit after you've been only saved for five minutes? Who do you think you are? You should waste at least a year. You need to make yourself more worthy. And then you forget the covenant, and you fall one day, and the accuser comes and says, well, now you've really done it. I mean, at least you should do penance for about six months. Don't pray to God for a while. You've got to, get, you've got to act better. You don't have the right to pray. Don't read your Bible. You've fallen. After all Jesus did for you, look what you've done. How could you do this? You're terrible. You ever get those voices? If not, maybe you're just unusual. <laughs> and you begin to wonder, am I really in covenant? What do you do? How do you, how do you handle that? Well, here's how you handle it. When the enemy comes and gives you those voices, you smile and say, you know what, you are absolutely right. But I want you to notice at the bottom of every sin that you listed is, the blood of, is written in the blood of Jesus, paid in full. Paid in full. And so you can say, devil, you need a little Bible lesson, so go to Jesus and he'll teach you about the covenant. <laughs> Guys, we have to learn to walk in the covenant, and that's what the next five parts of the series will be. And so uh, it's going to be good news. So how about we take the memorial meal together with a different level of meaning. So I'm going to ask our ushers, usherettes, and, uh, to come. And uh, they're going to be standing in the front here, I think. It is. And so let's do this. Let's have you guys come forward and get it. And then, um, and then you can uh, go back to your seats and we'll take it together. And uh, we'll take it with a little bit better understanding. If you need us to bring communion to you, if you could just raise your hand and we'll get, uh, we'll get somebody to bring it to you.
Lots of cute kids this morning. Hard to concentrate with all the cuteness. So you guys know our senior associate, uh, Sean and Rachel, had their baby, and so I uh, texted him the other day. And um, so he's out. So at Zion, we have uh, paternity leave. So guys get, guys get time off. So he's on paternity leave. So I texted him and said, uh, is Asher getting enough kisses? And he says uh, he's had to buy cases of chapstick because his lips are getting so chapped. So I thought, you know what? <laughs> that sounds good. Good job, Dad. Did anybody uh, want to get served that didn't get served? We want to make sure we get you. We can bring it to you. Thanks, guys, for helping serve. Appreciate it, and gals. We got great volunteers, great security team, great AV team, so appreciate you guys. So you guys know what happens when you take the bread and the cup? It's the covenant meal. Remember the memorial meal that sealed the covenant? It was the bread and it was the cup. What's that? I got it. Yep, thanks. Thank you. So every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're reminding yourself in the presence of God, devils, angels, and men that I'm a blood covenant child of God. I'm a blood brother of Jesus Christ, and I'm a blood brother and sister of every believer in his church. Guys, we are blood covenant kids. And as you grasp hold of that, all things are possible. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you, eat, uh, whenever you drink this, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. As we take this cup... Uh, it really stands for the forgiveness of sins. I'm not sure if you were here when Hannah opened up service. She did such a beautiful job, but she talked about how God restored her family and restored her marriage. And literally that one decision for them to say yes to God, take off that old way of doing things, put on that new way, they literally changed the trajectory of their family line. They've got a whole different level of inheritance now. This cup, it, uh, it breaks the power of sin. It breaks the power of condemnation, guilt, shame, addictions, God doesn't just forgive your sins. He actually gives you the power to get free from the effects of sin. Whether it be generational or whether it be your own uh, first-generation mistakes, uh, he breaks the power of sin. So as we take this, I want you to remember, you've become one with Christ, that his blood is flowing into you. And that blood that he took and presented to the Father uh, that, uh, for that righteous offering, you now are, have the same standing with the Father that Jesus has. I want you guys to get that. When he presented that blood offering on the, on the Easter Sunday morning in heaven, and he was declared that it was righteous, you now have the same standing with the Father that Jesus does. So as we take this, I want you to remember, I'm one with Jesus. He's one with me. I have the same standing. And if you need forgiveness of sins, I just encourage you right now, let's just pause and say, Lord, forgive me. Maybe you need an, a victory in an area. Maybe there is an, uh, an area that you've asked for forgiveness for 30 times, and uh, now you're going to believe it. Because you recognize it's not based on what you've done. It's based on what your elder brother, your blood brother has done. So Jesus, we thank you for this cup, for the power over sin, the victory over sin, and that we've been made one with you. Let's take the cup together. After supper, it says he took the, I think I'm, I think I'm skipping, I'm doing reversing the order. But he took the bread <laughs> and he said, uh, this is my body, which is for you. And so you can imagine on the, in the, in, the, in the blood covenant, they took the bread, and it's summarizing, this is me. Everything that I have, I'm now giving to you. So as we take this, it's his body. But I love that verse that says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
So God's given us a tangible way to see that everything that Christ has given us, put into a covenant form, let's take it together. Jesus, give us revelation on our oneness. Let's stand for closing prayer. Well, I hope you guys come back for the rest of this series. This is just the introduction. It's, uh, the, the covenant is really a key to a lot of things. You know, if you're here this morning and you've been hearing this message, you really, you've heard the message of the good news in, uh, in a Hebrew way of telling it from the Old Testament. So if you're here and you're like, man, I don't, I've never said yes to Jesus. I've never, I've never received that gift into my life. You've never said, Jesus, I, I'm done with my old way of living. I want to pick up this new way of living. God, forgive me. I'm putting my trust in you. And you're here this morning, you're like, I want to do that. I want to become a blood brother with Jesus, a blood sister with Jesus, uh, whatever that looks like. Um, if you're here, I just want to give you a chance to respond. Jesus said this, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. So we're not trying to embarrass anybody, but if you're here and you're like, man, I want that. I want to trust Jesus. I'm just going to ask you to do something bold. With uh, Every head up, every eye open, everyone looking around. I'm just going to ask you just to be bold and just say, hey, that's me. I, I, I want this. I want to become a follower of Jesus. Anybody in here? It goes for online, too, and so you guys can respond online. If you didn't respond but you wanted to, our, uh, our ministry teams will be here up front, and we'd love to pray with you. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, I thank you that I belong to you, and you belong to me. Just say that. Jesus, I belong to you, and you belong to me. Lord, I thank you that we're blood brothers with you. We love you. And today we draw upon that covenant for whatever we need. Lord, your bank account is our bank account. Your strength is our strength. Your wisdom is our wisdom. Lord, I pray this will go beyond word pictures and become life and peace in our spirits. I bless each person in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would like some extra prayer, our ministry teams are here. We'll agree with you for healing, for provision. If you need an encouraging word, there'll be ones with tags on. If you're new here, uh, my wife is at home today, but I would love to meet you over at the I'm New Flag. Bless you guys.